You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitate at support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Good morning, Stella. Hi, Sasha. How are you? I'm doing okay. How about yourself? Good. I think this uh, forthcoming episode is something that a lot of people have an interest in because ever since I first heard of gender dysphoria in this new era in the last few years, people have talked about the link between gender dysphoria and autism. And for this episode, we're just going to go there and explore why, how common, you know, where's it, how does it impact the entire kind of nature of the link between autism and gender dysphoria? Because I think it's one that really confuses people. I don't think people really see why. What a, what a funny link. And yet the more I work with this cohort, the more I say, well, it's a very strong link. And I know, I know you're going to have a lot to offer us in this because you, you were going to work with autism or you worked for many years with autism. So yeah. You t- yeah. Yeah. When I, when I was in undergrad, um, I started connecting with uh, the, the work around autism through the ABA community, which is applied behavioral analysis. And so this, this is a mode of therapy that really comes from like BF Skinner and the behaviorists that, that supposes that we all learn our social behaviors. And so because kids on the autism spectrum have a hard time with things like picking up social cues and imitation and communication, a lot of that stuff can be taught through these really intensive training programs. So for many, many years, um, I worked in these in-home programs. So I would go and spend like four hours at a time in intensive applied behavioral analysis therapy with really pretty um, moderately to severely autistic children. These are kids who didn't speak. They didn't have verbal communication. They really had to be taught everything almost from scratch. And, you know, that was a really, really shaping aspect of my training. Um, And of course, now the population I work with is quite different insofar as they are high functioning kids who are doing able to go to school, interact with peers, go to university. But I see a lot of these same traits. And whether they have a diagnosis or not, the longer I work with some of these kids, just like you said, Stella, I start to pick up that, oh my goodness, there are all of these traits that this child has that maybe they've been able to mask, maybe they've been able to suppress. But I'm pretty certain that a lot of the young kids in this cohort have some of these traits, whether they have the diagnosis or not. And so today we're going to, we're going to dig into it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm the same. And I, I, I'm very interested in the, in the new concept of autistic traits rather than autistic diagnosis, because I find a lot of people are, are weird about getting a diagnosis. Either they carry it too heavily or they carry it too distortedly. It never seems to be an easy road to get a diagnosis. 
And yeah. so the more we free ourselves up from that, the better. When you say ABA, I've I've heard of it and I've heard a lot of actually autistic activism. And they they seem very against ABA. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I want to talk about that. I think maybe we could start just for our listeners who may not be aware with some kind of definitions just yeah. for, for people to understand what is this autism thing. And there have actually been a lot of changes in the DSM over the last, well, I guess, 10 years or so. So there, there used to be an Asperger's diagnosis, which is kind of like a high functioning version of autism. And that was removed from the DSM uh, five in 2013 and replaced it with something called social communication disorder, which is another kind of milder version of autism. But autism has certain kind of criteria. First of all, there's a deficit in social communication and social interaction. So a lot of times kids can be assessed for this actually quite young. I mean, the youngest autist, well, kid with a diagnosis that I've ever worked with was two years old, just a little baby. And in this case, it was because this baby was not hitting the kind of markers of, you know, when you point at something, a baby at some point starts to look where your finger is pointing or like the babble that the baby makes was really, really delayed. I mean, as delayed as you can be, you know, at that age. But parents who are on the lookout for these milestones, they can start to detect something maybe a little bit different going on as young as two. So, of course, that's a really young age to get any kind of diagnosis. Um, So, you know, kids won't, you know, reciprocate if they're having these nonverbal or if they're having these communication issues or. Um, you know, they they won't really know how to make eye contact. Their body language may be kind of awkward in a way that doesn't match up with other peers of their developmental age. Um, and they really struggle with relationship building. And so we'll talk a little bit more about this in the context of, of gender. Uh, another thing is that there are typically repetitive patterns of behavior or interests. So, you know, a classic example that we talk about with boys, which is different from girls, is like a boy, like a boy who will just line up his toys in a row rather than actually playing with the toys, or a boy who will take the wheel on a toy car and just spin it over and over and over and over. So like these repetitive types of play. Um, There's also an inflexibility when it comes to routines. So these are kids who have a really hard time with change or, you know, if they wake up every day, they have to do the exact same thing. Like, First, have to brush my teeth, then I have to have breakfast, or then I have to do this. And if there's any disruption of the routine, this can cause really big um, kind of emotional reactions and a lot of distress. These kids tend to have highly restricted interests. So, you know, for example, a kid who's only interested in watching Frozen over and over and over and no other movie ever. (laughs) I think some of these Disney franchise movies like create some of this trade for some reason, but, um, and then there's, sorry, some of these Disney movies, Disney movies really, some kids get obsessed with them and I don't think they're on the spectrum at all. Like, I don't know why it is. I know I watch the same movies millions of times. Do you know, Sasha? Yeah. I actually watched Michael Jackson Thriller over and over and over and over, but I was afraid of it. So I'm just like, hide, but watch Thriller. Yeah, Um, that was Anyway, yeah. Anyway, the last one is just um, 
you know, intensity around sensory inputs. So these kids might have like a weird aversion to textures or to certain smells or to sounds or so th there's like a, an unusual way of interacting with the sensory environment. Um, and these kind of traits have to be present early in the development, and they're not better explained by something else, like an intellectual disability or some other thing. So that's the gist of it. I do think, though, when they, they, they give that, and I know that's a, you know that's a really good general kind of analysis of what is autism, I do think that it was very much built upon a male population. And I think um, in 10 years or 20 years, there's going to be either female autism and male autism or a wider, bigger range of what is autism. Because I, I don't think, I think an awful lot of girls with autism are getting missed. And then yeah. they hit really difficult times between, I don't know, 10 and 20. And then they get diagnosed while the boys are getting, it reminds me of Carolyn Crider Perez's book, Invisible Women. Insofar as the default was male, like the seatbelts or whatever, you know, they mm -hmm. created it around the male autism and then they suddenly went, oh, yeah, and there's female. And I think the girls are, are particularly neglected. It seems yeah. to me now I'm no expert on this. It seems to me that the girls are, are very neglected. Did you read um, Steve Silberman's Neurotribes? No. What is it? Oh, it's great. It's really good. It's a few years ago and um, it was talking about a whole history, really, of, of the diagnosis of autism and the neurotypicals and the neurodivergent. And, you know, it was, for me, the best book that I've read on an understanding of, of autism and how different different brains work. I really enjoyed it. I like, I like the name Neurotribes. I like the fact that these are tribes of neurological. Do you follow me? We're yeah. neurotypicals and things like yeah. that. Yeah, great book. Really recommend it. That's great. I mean, I think you're right, though, about the autism in girls. Um, I, I made a video, a Q&A video about this, and I include some resources in it. You know, there there's I think when I was working in the field, the only girls who were being there was this common idea that it's four to one. The ratio of boys to girls is four to one. And at the time, the only girls who were really getting diagnosed were girls with pretty severe behaviors. Um. And so they, they would just stand out. But what I've seen now and what I've learned from just kind of working in the field longer is that girls experience these traits in a slightly different way from boys. And what we see for girls is they have a really um, they have a desire to connect socially, but they really have a hard time interpreting some of the subtleties of social interaction. And so they become almost like brilliant um analysts of social behavior. So kids will say, you know, I just like study people's behavior and I create in my mind kind of like this catalog of like when someone says this, this is what you do. And there's a lot of imitation and there's a lot of, you know, almost like having in my, I think about like in their mind, there's some sort of like, what are those charts called where like, if you say yes or no, you go in this direction, oh, or that yes. direction. like a flow chart, you know? Yes. And I, I think for, for ki girls who have these traits, right? Again, whether they're diagnosed or not, the way they succeed socially is really by studying behaviors and trying their best to analyze, interpret, and sometimes the subtlety of female communication can be really hard for these girls to pick up. And so it's really interesting to hear the way they 
they have navigated and kind of made up for these challenges? I think you're right. I, I really agree. I think there's an awful lot of um, girls who are, as a result, and boys, I think it, it leads to anxiety. And uh, autism and anxiety seem to be almost interlinked at this stage. You, you can't seem to have one without the other. Well, you know, if you if you have autism, you very often are anxious. And I can imagine if you're constantly thinking, I'm I'm hanging on by my fingernails to understand this. And I think I've said the right thing, but maybe I've said the wrong thing. I can see how that would lead to a very anxious kind of place. Yeah. And I, I see it in them. I, I meet them and anxiety is probably more prominent, I find, than the autism. The autism you can see and it's quirky and it's often very likable. The anxiety is through the roof and makes them second guess everything. Yeah, but you know, I think that's that's kind of part of the problem because I think these kids will come to therapists like you or me with an anxiety diagnosis. Yeah. True. And so I think they're getting misdiagnosed. And I remember a couple of specific times in my work around gender, because of course people are contacting me when their children have gender issues. And I've had several instances where almost immediately speaking with a kid I go, in my mind, I go, this kid's on the spectrum. But they've come to me with a diagnosis of like OCD or anxiety or depression or all these other things. But kind of intuitively, having spent so much time with autistic kids, I can say, oh my gosh, I really think this kid is actually misdiagnosed. And maybe even 14, 15, 16, 17 has gone their whole life. And they're on like a boatload of psych meds, you know, when really that's not what's going on for this kid. And it's not like having an autism diagnosis is this magical, you know, cure-all at all, because you still have to do a lot of targeted kinds of supports and interventions. But misdiagnosing a kid to have OCD, for example, which is, it's hard to tease apart if you don't know the difference. It could be very easy to make that error and then kids end up, you know, getting the wrong kinds of treatments and parents are just not sure why their kid is not improving. Or, you know, a therapist who's working with a kid thinking they just have an anxiety disorder and they can't figure out why is this kid not making progress. So, yeah. And that brings up a lot because a kid who's diagnosed at a young age with, with autism, they're rolling with it from a young age. And so is the parents. When it comes in late, everybody's resisting. You know, I've often, I've had the very same experience as you with clients. I've suggested evaluation. I wouldn't, obviously, I'm a psychotherapist, so I don't give the evaluation. Yeah. And they've kind of said, oh, we'll, we'll leave it for the moment. No need. And should we get it? And while if the kid was six or seven, they'd be getting it. Right. Do, do you know, if somebody suggested it to them, but they don't really want to. They kind of think we've managed so far, let's not. And I, I, I think there's a, reason I, I get it I, I kind of buy both both versions of it yeah but I, I think now that it's come into our door very much through the lens of of gender I think well now it really needs to be looked at because the links between the two are, are extraordinary I remember when we were doing the film uh, we released it at the end of 2018 trans kids it's time to talk and I remember the stat that we were given from the Tavistock then was you know, 35% of the young people who were presenting at the Tavistock had moderate to severe autistic traits. That's phenomenal. Yeah. That's an extraordinary number. Totally uh, extraordinary. Yeah. 
Yeah. So that always stuck in my mind as kind of the stat that kind of, wow, this is a seriously linked condition. And the comorbidities with gender anyway, between between OCD and ADHD and PCOS and autism, there's some really, what's the word, favorites with gender, mm-hmm. isn't there? And it makes you think, whoa, where's the yeah. chicken and where's the egg here? You know, which is coming first here. Yeah, right. Exactly. And just doing a kind of quick Google search, the prevalence of autism in the general population is somewhere between one and three percent. Right. Ah. So when you look at this 35 percent number coming out of severe. Right. So that doesn't even include mild. Mild. Yeah. So there's just really something going on here. Um, and I, I think it's worth examining. There are other studies that indicate that uh, children with autism are four times more likely to be diagnosed with a gender-related condition, you know, gender dysphoria. So there's something here, you know, and today our goal is going to be to dig into what's going on here and, and why there might be this correlation. So what is your thesis? Well... I want to start with an interesting story from when I was working in ABA. So again, just to kind of remind the listeners, the kids I used to work with then were a very, very different population. They were kids who are really um, not independent. These are kids that at least the, the way they were presenting at the time could not have you know, gone off to college by themselves when they were older. These are kids that were probably going to be needing care from their parents and guardians probably their whole life. But one of the things that was really interesting in the programs, we would really uh, train and teach these kids how to, you know, do very simple things. Like you might have a 10-year-old who's still learning how to read and having to use like flashcards and all these different methods. And there were also play programs. So we would have to teach the kids how to play appropriately, you know, taking turns or all these different things. And we would teach them, for example, how to play with a toy in a variety of ways. So rather than taking the truck and going front, back, front, back for two hours, it's like front, back, let's go up the hill. Let's, you know, do this or that with it. And one of the things that I remember doing um, is that the program would teach gender appropriate toys and I was really conflicted about this at the time at what sort of age uh, all kinds of ages it really had more to do with the child's development so when okay. you have severe autism the age isn't quite as important as like as the how state to, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah so we would have kids who there's just these kids on the spectrum didn't care about gender at all they would get fixated on a toy or preferred playing with something just based on that item. So a boy could easily get really into, you know, some kind of sparkly wand, for example, and just want to carry it around all the time. So the programs would teach children supposedly gender appropriate toys so that they could help them, I guess, presumably kind of fit in with other kids if they were to kind of graduate to a neurotypical school or something. So it is well, well known amongst you know, professionals who work with autism, that autistic kids just don't really conform to gender norms. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. But but that seems to be um, one of the areas that was worked on to try and help the children blend in with other peers of their age and their sex. That's 
fascinating. That is fascinating. I suppose the first thing that jumps to my mind is they don't pick up on social cues. They don't have a, a kind of a back and forth and social interaction. And so they, um, they, they don't care about gender. They don't care whether it should be a truck or what the other kids are doing. They just like what they like, which is really liberating. And then I think back to what I said earlier about I've heard autistic um, activists give out as if ABA is poison, as if it's a terrible, terrible, terrible um, system. And obviously things like that is what they don't like. They're saying, let us be free to be autistic. Mm-hmm. And what we need is accommodations. We don't need to be told how to be a neurotypical. Thank you very much. We need accommodations so that we can live our neuroatypical life. What are your thoughts? Do you th- do you buy that or? You know, um, I was really, I was really struck by, by that argument because for so many years I had only worked with really, kind of severely, I, I'm just going to say severely impaired kids, and you know what? I have no qualms saying that because spending time in families' homes with these parents and seeing the absolutely kind of unbelievable amounts of time and energy and love and patience and tears that they spend trying to help their kid just have a normal existence. You know, so when I, when I heard these kind of autism activists talk about this, I thought, you know, I totally get this for people who are really high functioning. You know, if you are a young person who's able to, you know, of course, with challenges, right? But if you're able to go to school, you know, meet the academic standards, you're able to make friends, maybe it's a little bit awkward for you. You're right that you don't, you should not be stigmatized. But to say that autism in and of itself is only something we should celebrate is really insulting to the families who are just terrified that their child is going to you know, hurt themselves really badly because they have a headbanging behavior or that they don't understand, you know, how to navigate the world and they might really be at risk. So I just think it's not fair to the kids who really, really need special supports to treat autism as though it's only this like wonderful, perfect thing. And to be honest, you know, when you spend time in these intimate settings doing in-home therapy with the families, of course you recognize how special their children are and how, I mean, just beautiful and wonderful and connected. I mean, I cried so much when I left the field because I had felt so close to these kids. So undeniably they are wonderful and special in their own way, but to, to recognize that some of these kids will just never be able to be independent and to say that that's just different. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just different. Well, it's really hard and it's really hard on the families and it's really hard on these children because they, they try to communicate. They want to be able to express themselves. They can't. And that's so, so hard. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I, I do. I, I remember reading about like some of them might be, um, you know, doubly incontinent and nonverbal. And they are very, very clever and they are brilliant with words on the on the computer. 
And they are kind of waging a war about how we might need to accommodate all of this. And we do need to accommodate all this. And, you know, the world does come in lots of different colours and stuff. But being the parent of a child who's very severely impaired, I can see why they'd go for ABA and say, just help me, help me so that they can help themselves. Yeah, it seems the most appropriate way forward as as far as I could see. But back to the gender roles. So you did you did that light a fire at the time? Did you think this is so inappropriate or what did you think when they said, oh, now we're going to teach them not to like pink? Yeah, I mean, I I didn't really like it. I didn't understand why that was such a big deal. I think part of the reason ABA is critiqued is because it's based on a neurotypical behavior. You know, we're trying to make these kids fit into a box. And I am actually, you know, just to go back to this activism for a moment, I am much more in favor of allowing kids to have kind of flexible boundaries around their traits. So, for example, you know, self-stimulatory behaviors are these repetitive motor movements that a lot of kids on the spectrum will do. So, for example, hand flapping or like finger twiddling or rocking. Those are some examples. And so in these programs, I am all about the idea that, you know, this is a this is a sensory motion that the child feels comforted by. So let's make space for that. Um, I think it's fine for kids to have opportunities to do their self-stimulatory behaviors and to, you know, let that energy out of their body. Um, so I, I think that kids on the spectrum need to be able to work with the traits that they have in a flexible way. And that also is true for gender. I don't agree in trying to make kids on the spectrum fit the mold of whatever you think a neurotypical boy would look like, for example. I think we should give kids more room to, you know, allow themselves to have these traits and still find appropriate workarounds so that they can be successful in the things that they want, like socially connecting. Yeah, I think the gender thing, it's very understandable. If you're not going to be kind of picking up on social cues, so you're not kind of conscious of what is the gender, as opposed to the sex, what is the gender roles expected of you? And so you you're, you haven't picked up on them. And therefore, that's fine. That's cute when you're five and sweet when you're eight. And then at 10, you know, an awful lot of other children are sussing. They're realizing, you know, that kid is different. They've, they've realized it before, but now they're dividing and they're figuring out who's cool and who isn't. And they're saying that quirky kid is actually a bit odd. And they are emanating that kind of, they're communicating that to the child who didn't realize on any level that their shoes were stupid looking or, you know, not considered cool or that their jumper was a little bit feminine and things like that. I can so understand how they 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 fell into it thoughtlessly. They they weren't thinking, they were just taking comfort. Yeah. And colour or, you know, a very, in a very different place they were. And then suddenly they become girly or boyish. And then because of the autistic kind of mindset, they have this literal kind of understanding of, oh, I'm apparently boyish. Does that mean I'm a boy? I'm girlish. That, and that black and white thinking and the literalness seems to be a very big link. For a start, one, they're, they're gender nonconforming because of the lack of social kind of cues and understanding of that. 
And then two, their literal mindedness mm-hmm. makes them think, oh, well, then I must be a boy. Mm-hmm. I see this showing up in another way as well, which is that, you know, kids will, especially with the girls, I see this a lot, will try really hard to imitate what they, they see. Again, because the way girls are struggling with these autistic traits is a little bit different. And so sometimes what I'll hear is that, like, I was pretending so much. And now that I'm now that I quote discovered I'm trans, I get to be my real self. And that has to do with trying so hard to fit in the stereotype, right? You're talking Stella about kids who don't think about it at all and don't really care. And I think sometimes the, the other way will happen where they're actually concentrating so much on like, well, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to look? And they conflate that feeling of being inauthentic with being trans and so they they might believe that all of those years when I was just trying too hard which is a very common thing we can experience I mean nobody wants to be trying too hard all the time and then being able to let go of that in their transgender kind of presentation they're more androgynous they get to wear comfortable clothes that feels more real and so that can easily become solidified and I think you're right to bring up the black and white thinking. Nuance is very challenging for these kids. So it's really um, difficult to work on the gray areas of life with them. They want things to be really clear and defined. And, you know, these are kids who really love systems and definitions and labels and working on the subtlety of just being a human and some of these complexities, it, it can kind of go over their heads in a way. And they love the frameworks. You know, the autistic mind loves a framework, mm-hmm. a category, label everything to within an inch of its life. So sometimes a client will come in and give me like 18 different labels and I'll think, oh, <laughs> what are we here now? Yeah. I, I don't work like that, but it's definitely the framework that they work in. And so it's, it's these days, this obsession with labels and categories and and where where, where you're no, where do you fit and theories, that's exact that's meat and drink to their mind. They're like, oh great, let me study all the categories and I'll agonize over them and then I'll find them. And then I will be nicely labeled. Yes. And correctly labeled. And that satisfies my mind. And I'm anxious until I get it. Yeah. And so it's made for it it's almost like i would i would say that this entire this entire kind of movement is pretty much custom built for somebody who's on the spectrum that it 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 takes all the obsessive interest the categories the kind of all the kind of different explanations and frameworks to go with all the categories this is just this is their festival it's exactly how their brain works and so I think, was it created by people on the spectrum and, and then it's maintained? Because there's been a massive explosion of numbers of people on the spectrum. Now, people will immediately say, oh, yeah, but there was an awful lot of undiagnosed people with ASD. And I've no doubt there was absolutely. But I still wonder, what is there an explosion anyway? Hmm. What do you think? Are you asking if there's more autistic people now than before? Yeah, hmm. yeah. Even given the the that we didn't diagnose them properly, we missed a massive amount of children. Yeah. 
They weren't diagnosed. Well, this is reminding me of something we talked about previously where you were describing the way technology can actually cause us to feel more emotionally erratic. And I do wonder, I don't remember who I heard talking about this, but I, I do think that technology and being overly glued to it, especially during these important developmental years, I think that can exacerbate those traits you know, the social deficits. I mean, think of how think of how difficult it is to interact socially in real time with people if you've spent most of your time, most of your life only interacting by text messages. Just let's stop there for a minute. How much is lost in terms of visual cues, body language cues, um, eye contact cues? How much is lost when a kid's main mode of communication with others is texts, which for a lot of kids it is. I I have heard stories from clients about going to a party and everybody is sitting around texting each other in person at the party. Oh, no. I know. I know. I remember hearing of little boy. It was sweet, but it was still... And then he was sitting beside her and he texted, can I kiss you? Oh! And it is sweet. It is sweet. That's a sweet story, but it also makes me worried. Totally. Right. So I think, I mean, this might be controversial, but I think it's entirely plausible that the way we now kind of interact with one another can exacerbate traits of social difficulty let's put it that way autism aside social difficulty can become exacerbated when we communicate predominantly online yeah and um autistic traits can emanate from overuse of tech yeah yeah and there's no two ways about that Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i remember one of the things when when i worked in the field was that sometimes we would see a kid or hear about a kid or assess a kid and we would suspect that the child's traits are um, emanating from neglect, for example, right? So there are a lot of kind of deficits that can come about from a social or environmental uh, kind of dearth, like with not enough stimulation or not enough human contact. So these are, of course, traits that all humans are capable of exhibiting. And there are lots of reasons why somebody might present with these types of social difficulties or this like lack of eye contact or, or whatever. So, uh, you know, you brought up also the narrow interests. And I just think this is important. I think we should stop and and, and work on this a little bit because, When I think about, for example, I've seen lots of, you know, videos and um, online accounts of young people who are activists, maybe they're gender activists, or maybe they're, you know, communists that are 15 or 16, you know, and when, when you, when you see the absolute fervor and intensity of some of their behavior and their activism and, and really sometimes to the exclusion of all other important things in their life, you know, again, some of that's normal teenage behavior, but also in the back of my mind, I go, Hmm, 
I recognize this. I recognize this obsessive interest with something, this very narrow focus and the black and white thinking of like you're transphobic or you're, you know, cis heteronormative, like all of these rigid categories and all of this intensity. This is very, very common for anybody who has an autistic kid or who's worked with autistic people. And somebody who has a kind of a fixation in their head, whatever it is, they bring all roads lead back to that fixation. So like if they're fixated with trains, they will say that reminds me of the train (laughs) when you're talking about something completely different. Mm -hmm. Everything brings back to trains. Now, if the if the obsession is trans issues and transphobia, well, then everything is directed into, well, that's transphobic or that's that's related to trans. So you can see how that has that that kind of creep has happened. It's it's very understandable why it's happened because an awful lot of people, like you said, four times more likely if you are on the spectrum to be to have issues with gender. And then if you become fixated, you're much more likely to see everything. And you know that concept of the trans broken arm that like, you know, when you go to the doctor and you're trans, like you're you're you know, your broken arm and it's a trans broken arm. So it's kind of this fixation of everything to do with me is to do with my gender identity which is in fairness it is the kind of concept really of of queer theory or gender identity theory that it's all around our gender while I would say a more neurotypical approach to life would think there's nothing that is all there's no one aspect of us that shows the complexity of the human condition. We're wider and we're bigger than that. No matter what it is, whether it's our country or our religion or our gender identity, we're bigger. Mm-hmm. But if we have a narrow fixation, yeah, I can really see how it just it takes over. And there's also the issue of, you know, how does sensory sensitivity overlap with sex dysphoria? If you are a person who's overwhelmed by sensory experiences and the signals that you get from the environment to your body just makes you feel uncomfortable in your own skin and you just can't get comfortable. That is one of the things that people often explore when they're trying to, you know, figure out their gender identity. Am I comfortable in my body? And a lot of times the answer is no. And there can be, again, many reasons for that. You know, something that um, is coming to my mind is that we actually have had, when I worked in the field, there were a lot of kids who had um, issues around masturbation, like public masturbation. And one thing that I'm aware of is that sometimes with males, they would compulsively masturbate to the point where they could injure their genitals. Mm-hmm. And I remember a couple of instances where that could lead to like a sex dysphoria kind of experience where like you're afraid of touching your genitals and you're, but yet you want to touch your genitals, but then you're, you know, you've had painful experiences around that. And again, if you are struggling to, synthesize all of the nuance here you might get this black and white thinking of like i hate my genitals i want to get rid of my genitals i want to transition so that really struck me when i was kind of thinking through that dynamic because there's a lot going on with the body 
and the sensory experience that can overlap with gender dysphoria too. Yeah, and the discomfort, the real persistent unease that adolescence and puberty brings, throw that in with somebody who already feels uncomfortable and uncertain and anxious. And you've, you've really got a, a real maelstrom now of, of, of high emotion. And so I can see how that could happen. I have seen a lot of kind of obsession around um, binders and binding, a massive amount of time spent around that. And I've also seen for boys an obsession with body hair. And it feels just a very, very obsessional kind of fixation that has arisen. And it it, it seems to be the, the entire kind of identification is around the body hair. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I wonder, is that to do with sensory issues? Maybe it isn't, but it, it occurs to me it could be. Well, it's it's interesting because, you know, compression is one of the kind of interventions or treatments that is used for really young kids on the spectrum. So weighted blankets, doing all these kind of sensory yeah. things. So I've always wondered if the binder offers a sense of compression that can feel containing for somebody. I don't know. I mean, there's no research on this because unfortunately nobody's really researching gender in these different kinds of ways, but I've often wondered about it. Yeah. Oh, my God, that's such a good point. I've never heard you say that. That's really interesting. Yeah, it does feel that we're, we're, we're kind of new to autism and we're new to gender and they're massively linked. And so we're, we're, we're really kind of flailing around yeah. in, in what we should do. I, I really do think that when, when we're working with them, as you said, you know, earlier, you said, you know, you, when you're working with somebody with autism, you go at it very differently. And I think parents of autistic children, like there's another great book, Andrew Solomon, Far From the Tree. Did you ever read that? No. Oh, it's a, just a beautiful book. I think it's Andrew Solomon. Yeah, he wrote the book. Basically, the concept of it is some of us give birth to a child who's very, very different than us. Mm. So let's say mothers of uh, children who are deaf, mothers of ch- or f- parents of children who are autistic or parents of children who are just profoundly different to themselves. He himself was gay, and I wonder, like, was he just profoundly different from his family? And, um, yeah, it's an entire book based upon that, a fascinating book. And I think parents of, of autistic children feel scared that they don't understand the workings of their neuroatypical child. And I, I, I think we all feel scared. I certainly feel scared. I don't understand them. I don't have that ease that I would have, that easy kind of empathy I have. I don't have that with, with autism. And so it makes me more nervous. And I think it makes other people more nervous, which just adds to their sense of isolation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of kids will say, they can tell, like they can tell when somebody just like doesn't really want to talk to them and they, they often feel so much social rejection and it's so hard. They want so badly to just be able to have kind of normal interactions with other kids. And yet they get into a conversation and their wheels are spinning a million miles an hour trying to figure out what does that person mean when they say that? What am I supposed to say right now? I don't understand that person's face that they just made, you know? And so, you know, working with kids who have these traits, like I was sharing with you earlier, 
sometimes it has to just be very concrete and really, um, really, I try to do a mix of things. Like on one hand, I try to normalize that, hey, everybody feels socially weird sometimes, you know, sometimes I'll share a story of when I did something very embarrassing. And, you know, because I think that the other side of this coin is sometimes kids who do have a diagnosis, they attribute everything to their autism and then they feel really weird about it. Yeah. And on the other hand, I mean, you don't want to deny that they're having legitimate challenges. So I try to do a combination of, you know, normalizing some of the experience and then giving actual concrete tools. So sometimes, you know, if a kid is describing this awkward social situation they had, I'll say, hey, would it help to actually role play? Let's practice together. You know, let's try to figure out what does it mean when a person makes that particular face in that context? Um, Because they need concrete tools and I have found that like a, a very depth oriented perspective or a very symbolic kind of therapeutic work goes like right over their head. Sometimes, you know, kids don't even understand, you know, a joke or a metaphor. They need it to be pretty literal and concrete. So it's I find because I guess I really, really like this population. I enjoy the process of taking something and breaking it down into really manageable understandable chunks that's lovely they're lucky to have you um i i think the literalness the black and whiteness of it is probably the most easy to lead them astray it's where they kind of think if i'm not this i must be that and if you're not supporting me you must be transphobic and if i'm if i'm not feeling trans I don't know if I'm not a trans man maybe I'm agender or maybe I'm and off they go into their categories analyzing their frameworks looking for their literal tick 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 and missing the complexity of humanity Mm -hmm. and do they realize it I ask you do they realize that they're missing these complexities I think it really depends on their level of functioning and it depends on you know, whether or not their parents have been able to kind of directly address some of these things. I mean, I've worked with families who the parents really learned learned exactly how to best support their child and were able to kind of meet them where they are. And then I think in other families where there was no diagnosis ever, I think parents really feel like they're floundering trying to figure it out. But sometimes we have to work on it explicitly. I mean, I will often work with people on, you know, yeah, things do happen in this particular way sometimes. And have you ever had the experience where there's like a an exception to that rule? You know, like we really have to break it down. So I think whether they get it or not, it, it depends on if anyone is helping them kind of piece it together little by little. In many ways, you could say that they're they're suited to transition. Because they they are labeled, they're categorized, they can kind of they can head into it, and perhaps it's arguable that they'd be less likely to wish to break out of that categorization as other layers and complexities are added in their life because they they wish to stick to the categories. 
while a neurotypical might want to kind of say, oh, there's more to me than gender, and actually maybe I, I could move out of this. Is it arguable to say they're less likely to detransition than than neurotypicals? That's a really interesting question, Stella. I don't really know. I mean, my guess is that a lot of the people who are using neo-pronouns are probably on the spectrum because it is such a it's such an outside of the box thing. And and to be honest, a lot of people who are on the spectrum are totally outside of the box people. They're really unique. They're really quirky. They do their own thing. I mean, think of somebody like Temple Grandin. Do you know who that mm, is? Yeah. Fascinating, brilliant, yeah. brilliant woman. When you look at her, you're just like, wow, she's an interesting looking lady. She does she's got her own style. So I think there's a lot of unique traits in a lot of people on the spectrum. So whether they're less likely to detransition, I don't know. I mean, there is like a, a a determination that sometimes yeah. people on the spectrum have and they really go for it. And a clarity. Yeah. A clarity. I'm going for this and this is what I'm going for. And, and also kids on the spectrum, in, in my experience, they will kind of change their mind and cycle through various things. You know, sometimes you'll talk to a parent, well, between the ages of two and five, our kid was obsessed with this thing. And then from five to 10, they got really obsessed with this other thing. And I mean, I, I think it can manifest in a lot of different ways. But, you know, I, I guess if if a person is less likely to kind of anticipate what the social cues are supposed to be and they find themselves in a really supportive environment of you know other people affirming their identity for them that might be good enough because you know I often will wonder about for a person who's dysphoric is it good enough that other people are just using your pronouns out of respect or do you literally want them to think you're a literal male but they would think they're literal minded, so they would think if you use my pronouns, you literally think I'm a woman. Possibly. Very possibly. Yeah. And that's that's what I mean. Like if it's somebody who their social interactions are kind of very rule based, as long as the, the rules are being followed, it's good enough for me. And so yeah. I hear some detransitioners say, you know, I, I detransitioned when I realized actually, no, I, even though people are using my pronouns, they don't really think I'm a guy. And when it comes to, for example, intimate experiences, I realized like I'm still a woman ha having these sexual experiences and I'm not actually a guy. So for some people, that disconnect is what makes them feel as though transition isn't really giving them what they expected. So for somebody else, if it's all about the rules, as long as people are following the rules, that's fine. Which gives us a very good understanding of why people are so heavy on the why won't you use my pronouns? Because you're like, you, they're basically thinking you are wrecking my existence because my existence just needs you to use my pronouns and therefore I will feel at ease. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying that this should happen, but it does give us a good insight on why they're so fixated on it because the, the jump of, but I, if I did use your pronouns, I would only be doing it in a fake and superficial and hypocritical manner that line isn't particularly computing with them. They think once you use my pronouns, you are treating me as a woman. Therefore, I am a woman because gender is performative and here I am. So I can see, you know, I can see how we got ourselves here. I don't see how we get ourselves out. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think that's really interesting because you, you've often talked about how intense pronouns can be and it could be this really big struggle over pronouns. And yeah, if it's a very rule based kind of situation and a person struggles with not getting their way and like change and you know, I think for people on the spectrum, once there's an expectation in their mind, if that expectation is not met, like a lot of anxiety comes up. Um, totally. I think one of the ways that, that we can address it is just by kind of giving people practical tools. I think one of the ways that this will often show up, I mean, autistic traits will show up is emotional dysregulation. So, uh, you know, a family will say, you know, my kid just has these tantrums and like it's really hard to get them to calm down and they like can't really listen to reason when they're upset. So I think being able to give people some some tools on how to manage their big emotions. I mean, I try to destigmatize the language as much as I can. And I'll say intense emotions rather than calling it like a meltdown. Like that's a really common term used in the autism, autistic meltdown. But I think that's so, I think that's so degrading in a way. I mean, I, I get why it's used, but I try to say, okay, really big emotions that feel overwhelming. How do we help people with those? Why do you feel it's degrading? That's interesting. I mean, a meltdown just sounds as though the person is completely bonkers, like they've lost their mind. They're no longer someone you can talk with or rationalize with. And again, I mean, if you're a parent and you've observed this, I get why people use that term. But if I were, I mean, if I were overwhelmed with emotions that were so hard for me to process that I was like crying on the floor. I wouldn't want someone saying, oh, Sasha's melting down again. I mean, it just, it doesn't honor yeah, the fact that there's something dismissive. going on inside for that person. Yeah, it's it's incredibly dismissive. You're right. Must remember that. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's very difficult to be, to be neuroatypical in a neurotypical world. Yeah. And I think we're, we're kind of coming to terms with that in this kind of generation in a way that we never have before. It's it's a it's a it's a kind of an un, 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 uncomfortable scenario where we're trying to figure out how do we, let's say, how do we train neuroatypicals to be more neurotypical, and when do we stop and say, actually, let's start accommodating? Do we just need to balance this? That's really hard. Yeah. Do you what do you think about the issue of getting assessed? Because I. I think this is really tricky. And a lot of parents who contact us, I speak for myself, you know, try are trying to figure out, should I get my kid assessed for autism? So I think before we finish, we should definitely address this question because it comes up a lot. Right. Well, I, I have a, like a classic flaky psychotherapist on the one hand, <laughs> I think. Um, that it can act as a slowing down and a complexifying of the situation so that the person who could be on the spectrum has a better and bigger understanding of their personality and they realize it, it slows down their rush to medicalize because it can almost act as a shield and a, a, a definitely as a, a kind of a decelerator because they realize, oh, there's another factor. And there's all sorts of categories in this factor. And this factor in and of itself to my autistic mind is very interesting and opens up a lot of kind of um, other boxes for me to fill. And I think that's very good. 
On the other hand, an awful lot of um, children and uh, teenagers and adults who've been, who have been diagnosed late in the day as ASD, they, as on the spectrum, they have said, oh, that proves I'm trans because autistic people are trans very often. And so it accelerates. So there's, it can work both ways. And the third kind of, kind of layer would be, and some react very badly to it because they feel you're stigmatizing me. You're, st- you're saying there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not that I'm, I'm trans, but I'm autistic and you're, you're denigrating my, my, my existence here. So there you go. I have a very kind of, what's the word? Tread carefully yeah. would be where I'd go with that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, when, when families are already embroiled in the ROGD kind of issue and then they go, oh, well, we need to literally get you tested for everything, every single thing that could be wrong. It really feels to the teen as though you're just trying to find any excuse to tell me I'm not really trans. And that is not a great place to be. And whether your kid has the diagnosis or not, if they tend to get fixated on something, they're going to get fixated on it. So it may not act for the child. It may not necessarily create one of these opening up complexifying Mm. situation. I mean, they struggle with complexity, right? So, so it may not work in that way. Though I think if it's, if it's in a non-stigmatizing way, and if the family is incredibly careful about how they present it, I think it could be beneficial in some cases. Again, I'm doing the kind of flaky therapist thing. (laughs) Um, You know, I think autism is one of these interesting things that, again, has to be held very lightly. You don't want, I mean, I, I think you don't want to be in a situation with, let's say, a kid who's functioned really well throughout life so far. Yeah, they've had some ups and downs with friendships, but they've made it work. You know, they're doing well in school. They have hobbies and interests. They're engaged in life. You don't want to take a kid like that and start constantly kind of browbeating them with an autism diagnosis because it can make them feel, you know, like something is wrong with them. On the other hand, if there's a kid who's struggled tremendously for a long time and they are not sure why, Being able to say, oh, you know, your brain just works a little bit differently. And there are really beneficial things, too, about people on the spectrum. I mean, some of the most brilliant kids I've ever met with incredible abilities have been on the spectrum, like mind-blowingly talented in, in music or art or, you know, in their academic pursuits. So there's always two sides to the coin. So I think, like, if a family is trying to figure out whether or not to get a diagnosis, I would just say, you know, don't use a diagnosis as a reason to um, try and kind of get in a power struggle with your child, because I don't think power struggles are really helpful for anybody in the ROGD situation. Yeah, I think power struggles is the one thing you do not get into with the autistic child as well, because that will not work. That's right. Yeah. I think we'll probably revisit this topic again. What do you think, Stella? Yeah, I think I'd be I think people would be very thankful that we've we've I hope they will that we've explored it, but I think they I find our listeners are coming up with some really thought-provoking questions and I've no doubt they'll have thought of issues and aspects of this that we haven't thought of that we we can re-explore in the future. 
Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, a Wider Lens. This podcast is partially sponsored by RIME, Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics. RIME is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit RethinkIME.org to learn more. If you found value in our show, please review us on iTunes and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 